start a brand new series. Super excited about it. We're going to be walking through the book of Ephesians over the next six weeks, possibly seven if we need to. Uh, but we're going to start today with a little quiz. And I was meaning to get a, um, a prize, but I will give you the prize next week because I didn't get myself organized enough. But if anyone, without looking at Google, is able to name the seven ancient wonders of the world, you get a chocolate. <laughs> Anyone? Seven ancient ones, not the modern ones, not the, not the new ones, but the original, if you will, the OG wonders of the world. Close, but not quite. It's not the statue. Yes, the hanging, well, you need to name all seven. So obviously, no one's going to get this. All right, I've got a picture, Nebs, if, if you can put it up. These are the seven ancient wonders. I'm going to read them out to you. They're the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, forgive my Greek, um, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, and the Temple of Artemis or Diana, so not the statue, but the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And to be honest, I did not know uh, these seven. Um, I didn't, I, I, the only one I knew of was the pyramids, right? Because I think out of all seven, only the pyramids continues to stand in its, um, in ancient, its ancient glory. And, um, and one of the things about the pyramids is that it is so iconic to Egypt, right? If you think Egypt, in your mind's eye, I bet that you're seeing those triangular shapes at the very least in the background, if not right there in the foreground. You're thinking about Indiana Jones. You're thinking about sand and the pyramids. You're thinking the pyramids. And, and that's what it is like. I remember when I was in high school um, in year 12, I believe, or year 11, I was um, one of those buddy student things because of one of the units I was doing. And, and we were supposed to help new students who had just migrated into Australia um, to, to integrate into uh, Australian culture, into our school, even though I was a fresh migrant myself of maybe a couple of years. And, and um, I remember everyone was getting paired up and then I got paired up. Uh, it was, I was the last picked and I got paired up with this girl who clearly did not um, think it was um, a good choice. <laughs> you know, when you're like the last pick, you're like, oh man, why am I even here? That's what it felt like. And I was paired up with this girl, and she was like, oh. And um, so I was like, I better break the ice. And we were, I was asking her, where do you come from? And she said, oh, I'm from Egypt. And I was like, oh, the pyramids, you know? Like, I was just trying to get a conversation going. And clearly for her, this is a conversation that ha happened many times before. And she, she kind of rolled her eyes, yes, the pyramids. I do not live at the pyramids. I do not live in a pyramid. <laughs> it's kind of one of those moments where I was like, oh, man, if I could only just take those words back. But Egypt and the pyramids are so closely interlinked that if you think Egypt, you think the pyramids. And so when I was looking into the cultural context of Ephesus, so by the way, Ephesus is the name of the place that the book of Ephesians was addressed to, the church in Ephesus. And when I was uh, researching this, I found out that the Temple of Artemis, sometimes also known as the Temple of Diana, uh, was like the, the pyramids to Egypt. 
In fact, some of the ancient writers wrote that the temple of Artemis was the wonder of the seven wonders. It was massive. It was huge. It was uh, glorious. And the reason why it could be Artemis or Diana, just in case you wanted to know, is because Artemis is the Greek goddess of hunting and Diana is the Roman goddess of hunting. And so when Rome took over uh, this area in Ephesus and they saw this temple, it was like, hey, possibly the same same chick and so they it kind of is like Artemis, Diana, Greek, Roman, same deal right so that's kind of how it in my mind that's the exchange that took place all right it probably was a little bit more like diplomatic than how I just put it it's like hey it really is Diana right so anyway so this temple took 220 years to build 220 years Anyone close to that age, don't raise your hand. You probably don't want to be known as a 220-year-old. 220 years old, it's the length of the terraces was over 120 meters long. This thing was like massive. And because of all the columns that, um, that they had built, it looked like it was stretched up and its roof was in the sky. This was massive. And... Um, and also, interestingly, as Lil pointed out, there was a statue of Artemis that is in the temple. And the interesting thing about this statue is that they possibly carved it out of a meteorite. So there was a stone that fell out of the sky. Whether it really is a meteorite, we, we don't know. Maybe it was just a volcano somewhere else. It spewed it out. Um, but legend has it that this um, image of Artemis was carved out of a meteorite. In our Bibles, it actually alludes to this. In Acts chapter 19, verse 35, and they were talking about their temple, uh, uh, one of the sculptors actually says um, that the, the image of Artemis that fell from the sky, and that's what it was referencing. It was referencing that there was this meteorite that uh, fell, and then they carved the image of Artemis. And of course, in ancient times, if anything comes from the sky, it must be from the gods. And so it was a very um, and symbolic, powerful um, uh, picture for the, the, the people of Ephesus as to um, how they were the worshippers of Artemis or Diana. So why I'm telling you this is because what we need to realize when we think Ephesus is that we need to understand that the center of their whole city was this temple. It stood as a behemoth in the city. And so it, you, you would know, if you wanted somewhere to meet people, you would go, go to the temple and I will see you there. Okay, it is that everyone knows where the temple is. Everyone uh, uh, would, would, would reference that as the center of the city. But a little bit more information about Ephesus, and this is all leading somewhere, right? I'm not just giving you like a history geog geography lesson because those are not my strengths at all um, but the temple was the center of Ephesus and Ephesus was the capital city of Rome in the Asian region or what they called the Asian region back then it's not modern day Asia it is ancient Asia um, it, uh, Ephesus is actually in Turkey modern day Turkey if you want to uh, have a sense of where it was and Ephesus was a port city and, and therefore, they made it the capital because it was a strategic, um, uh, strategically placed, really important city. And, and some uh, scholars say that there could have been 250,000 to 500,000 people that called Ephesus home. 
So in those times, it was a really large city. It was a very important city. It was a very rich city. And, um, and, and, and the interesting thing about all this economic success of Ephesus is that it was actually centered around the temple. In ancient times, this was very common, uh, that who you worship was also, uh, was why you worship this God is because you believe that this God would bring the riches into your city. And so, um, a goddess worship, or God worship, I, whatever you call it, and uh, uh, the economic structures were actually linked together. So, guess where the bank of Ephesus was? It was in the temple. <laughs> if you had a bank in the middle of our church or at the back of our church, someone would be making a very big deal about that. <laughs> Probably all the news outlets was like, you know, if, if Hillsong Church had a bank in its foyer, you'd be like, what are you guys doing? Uh, but that's what it had. The bank was actually in the temple. The temple controlled uh, the trade guilds, the temple controlled uh, the fisheries, the temple controlled um, uh, all the artisans of the city. They controlled all the economic structures of the city. Why they controlled the artisans is because uh, the artisans actually brought a lot of money into the city. They would carve images of Diana or Artemis. They'll make little trinkets. Um, um, so kind of almost like a tourist, but also... Um, worship kind of a trait, and being a port city, people would come. People literally wanted to see the temple because of how uh, crazy magnificent it, it was. And, and so people would come, and then they would buy these trinkets, these statues, and it brought a lot of money into Ephesus. And so the economic growth came from, or was at the very least linked to the worship of Diana, and and so the people of Ephesus, after a while, um, identified themselves as worshippers of Diana, and that's who they were. It, it, it could be said that if you are an Ephesian, you are a worshipper of Diana. They were closely linked identities with each other. Oh, you're an Ephesian, you must be a worshipper of Diana, because that is what is... Um, common. That is what the city was known for. And so when Paul, the apostle who wrote uh, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, he actually spent three years in Ephesus. You can read about this in Acts chapters 19, 20, or 18 to 20, somewhere in there. And I would highly recommend that you read it. And uh, with this background, go read it. When I read it again, I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting. So Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and can you imagine, you're going into this city that is renowned for its worship of a certain god, right? And it's very strongly, the whole uh, city structure was centered around this temple and the worship of Diana, and Paul comes in. Paul steps into this place, and he starts to preach about uh, uh, another god. In fact, for us, as we know, is the one true God. He started to, to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible records something extremely interesting. In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. God did extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. In no other town, no other city that Paul went to was that recorded. It is in Ephesus that they recorded that people took handkerchiefs to wipe Paul's sweat, or I don't know what he would, like they gave it to Paul, and then Paul, they would then take the handkerchief and go throw it on someone who was sick, and that person got well. 
And I, that was kind of stuff. And, and, and please note, it only happened in one city. So do not try to throw your hankies at me. It doesn't work. I mean, I tried it. No, I did not try it before. I haven't tried it. I would. I don't think. It, yeah. Anyway, we're not in Ephesus. And I'm not Paul. And um, and God did these crazy miracles because He knew that for these people to realize that Dinah isn't God, they needed a thing that the God of Israel, it's kind of a strange thought, is the real God. And in that ancient mindset, it would have been really difficult, but to see such demonstration of power would have been so convincing, right? And so the church started to grow. And, and, and the book of Acts actually makes this note uh, to help us to see how much um, growth and uh, uh, people were turning to God. And so in Acts chapter 19, it records that people were turning away from sorcery. Because um, in ancient times, in Ephesus in particular, there was a really strong uh, uh, following of occultic uh, magic practices. And so, um, because modern medicine wasn't really present at that time, and so they would practice all of these different, uh, what they term sorcery, uh, for healings, for, for curses, for blessing, and all these kind of things. And so, when these people found out about God, and they were like, I'm going to worship God with all of my heart, they said, I need to turn away from sorcery, which is pretty awesome. And so, they, 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 they burned these sorcery books as a sign that I'm going to totally follow God. And Luke, who writes Acts, makes this point. He says the value of the books that were burned, sorcery books, okay, sorcery books, added up to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is a day's wage. So that's 50,000 days wages. I did a sums for you because I know that it's my job. Um, But that added that adds up to 137 years' wages. 137 years' wages spent on sorcery books. In our modern mindset, we can't understand it, but I think what was going on was that a lot, I don't think it was one bloke that was like, oh, here's my collection, let's burn this all, my precious 137 years' worth of collection. No, 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 this was a lot of people burning their sorcery books to the tune of 137 years' worth of them. That was what was going on in Ephesus when Paul was there. And as you read on in the, in the book of Acts, what you then find is the result of what Paul did and what God was doing in that town. Due to this revival of sorts, of people coming to God, um, uh, and they, but back then it wasn't called Christianity, they were called the way. And so this little bunch of Jewish people that came to preach about the way, at first the temple people were like, yeah, whatever. You know, we are Ephesians and we worship Diana. This is, your little thing is not going to be of it's not going to ruin much, but then they started to see what the way was accomplishing, and they got really worried. And so you will hear, or you will read about in Acts, that an artisan, one of the craftsmen, actually starts to uh, chuck a fit about this. And, and you will see that he says that, you know, uh, he's worried. And Luke puts in this little thought for us that he's actually worried about his economic outcome. Because if the way becomes bigger than, uh, than Dianan worship, Dianan worship? Worship of Diana? Uh, uh, his, his trade could, could collapse. 
but what we need to understand, this is not a guy who was necessarily only thinking about his wealth, even though that could have been a part of it, but wealth and spirituality were closely linked for him. And so he stirs up, it says, the whole city. <laughs> I don't know what it means that the whole city was stirred up, but they got stirred up about the way, okay? And they started to riot against the way. They wanted to petition the Roman uh, 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 rulers to chase the way out of Ephesus. And they were chanting for two hours straight. It says, long live Artemis of Ephesus. You can read about this. I'm not making this up. This is in our Bibles. And it's kind of interesting, you know, it says uh, Artemis of of Ephesus, (laughs) They they had so linked. Can you see the link between Artemis or Diana and Ephesus? They're like, this is our God. We are her followers. And uh, uh, Paul had actually already left Ephesus by that point, uh, but the local church had to deal with that kind of uh, persecution. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be an Ephesian citizen, and you... uh, hear about God, and you're like, wow, this actually is pretty amazing, and I want to follow this God, and you start to dive deeper into it. You want to give everything to God, and then you start to realize that the rulers of the city go, if you follow this God, and you don't follow Diana, the banks are going to be close to you. The trade guilds are going to be close to you. You are possibly going to be out of your normal job. Your social circles are going to shun you you're going to be pushed out onto the fringes of this city because Ephesians worship Diana. Have a think about that, right? That is what is the the climate for the early church in that city. That is what they would have been faced with. All across the world in that time, churches, Christians were being persecuted because they weren't worshipping the patron gods of the cities. It will happen the same in Ephesus. And when you have, can you just put up that temple picture, Nebs, and just leave it on because I'll reference it a few times. This, this is what Ephesus is about. This, this is what our city is about. Look at His majesty. Look at the prosperity that has been brought into the city because we worship Diana. And you're trying to take people away from this? You're trying to preach a different God? Is that different God going to be able to have this and make our city as important as it is right now? That is what was going on for the church in Ephesus. Now, just a little bit of a, I'm going to fast forward maybe a little bit later, and Paul writes a letter uh, uh, to Timothy, who he sends to pastor the church in Ephesus. Now, some scholars believe that by the time Paul writes this letter to Timothy, the church in Ephesus is 25,000 people strong. Of a city of maybe a quarter million, maybe half a million, 25,000 is pretty spectacular. You're talking about maybe 5 to 10% of the city's population in Paul's lifetime. He goes there, stays there for three years, sets up a church. After a while, it's doing so well, he sends Timothy, one of the sons of, uh, one of his uh, spiritual sons, that his protege. He trains this guy up and he says, this is the best that I've got. You go to Ephesus because Ephesus needs you. They have 25,000 church members there. That's what's going on. 
And so when we read the letter to the Ephesians, what we've got to understand is that this is part of how Paul tries to encourage the growth and tries to encourage the church that is in Ephesus. These people are not becoming Christians and getting to have a good time. These are people who follow Christ, and because they follow Christ, there are consequences to their faith. That is what is taking place there. And so today we're not going to go into as deep a dive as I would like into the words that Paul, Paul uses. I'm going to pick up a few themes, but we are going to cover chapter 1 today. We've got time. Good. So Ephesians chapter 1, hopefully some of you, not all of you, have already read this chapter a number of times this week. We do have a reading plan. Some of those are at the back if you want to pick one up. And it says this, I'm reading in the NIV, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now I'm going to just pause there, the will of God. We're going to come back to this theme of will of God through this chapter. Moving on, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, another quick theme there. We're going to talk about this whole idea of faithfulness today. And he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, when I read this verse a few years ago, when I was wondering about how good God is, have you ever wondered how good? We say God is good. We sing about God, you're good. What does it actually mean? And I came across this verse. It says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Not two spiritual blessings. Not three. Not five. Not most. Every spiritual blessing. And I was like, that's pretty amazing. And as I was preparing for today, I started to think, what does blessing mean? And I, we've hijacked that word in our modern context. And every time we feel happy about something, something's worked out well, hashtag blessed. It's like, is that really hashtag blessed? Oh, you know, I went to the shopping center and, I, and as, I, as I drove up, someone moved out and I got the parking spot, hashtag blessed. Is that what blessed actually means? Is that what it really is all about? And I looked into it, and it kind of is, to be honest. It was weird. Blessed just means to be happy. If you want to go a little bit deeper, it means to, to be made prosperous. And so Paul's saying that God has made us prosperous in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that is designed to make us prosperous. Now, again, the word prosperous is probably something that we hijack and we think financially alone, but realize that this is a heavenly realm, it's a spiritual blessing. But I want to come back to this idea because Paul straight away latches on to this thing. And he says, guys, praise God, because he has given us every spiritual blessing. How does God make us prosperous. What does it mean to have received every spiritual blessing? What does that look like? We'll come back to that idea. And he says, for he, he being God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, not ours, his pleasure and will, 
to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Now, a few words here that if you are like me, you have an immediate emotional reaction to, right? He has chosen us. He predestines us according to His pleasure. I'm like, oh, He predestines. And so, for the rest of today, no, joking, because I do not want to talk about predestination for the rest of today. But I do need to address this issue because when we as modern readers, we read the word predestination, I want you to dig deep and think about what immediately comes to mind. For me, it's what about my choice? If he predestines me, do I have choice? Right? And immediately we don't like that because we are acculturated to good old Australia where every single person is supposed to be given a fair go. And so if God predestines me, it's not fair and I don't like it. I don't like God being in control of my life. Not like that. I'm supposed to have a will. Does that mean that Aiden really, really loves Georgia or was he just simply predestined to love her? Is that really love? I don't know. Is it? Well, I want to zoom out from here because when we think predestination, we immediately think choice, right? That's not actually what predestination is necessarily all about. I want you to think about this yellow marker as being your lifespan, your beginning to your end. I've chosen yellow because it's my color, and um, it represents an Asian person. <laughs> and so there you go. So you do have your lifespan, beginning to end. Now, for me, as a human being, my life is being revealed in a linear fashion, right? Bit by bit. That's how my life feels to me. I can only see from what I've been through to where I'm at, and then I live through it. Make sense? That's what my life is like. But the Bible tells us that God exists outside of time, and He sees beginning to end. He lives outside of this space. He's not necessarily cooped up in his abilities, in his mind, in his perception, in my life according to how time works. God exists outside of time. He created time. He's not bound by time. He's outside of time. And so he sees our beginning and our end. And not only does he see our beginning and our end, he sees the whole world's beginning and end. And so he sees how everything is connected. He is not just looking at my life alone. Remember, I'm the little yellow one in the middle. He's not just seeing that. He's seeing how all things, all things work together. And he, in his amazing foresight, understands what is the best fit for me. God's predestination is Him designing us. You know, many of us don't have a problem with understanding that we are bespoke by God. <laughs> we are handcrafted by God. We love to quote as Christians, for you knew me before I was born. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You have fearfully and wonderfully made me. Yes, he predestined you to have your personality. 
So when you say, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I am a sanguine, I'm a cleric, I'm a melancholy, whatever you say, you are saying, yes, God has predestined me. He has created me in a unique fashion, placed me in the family of my origin, placed me in the country that I'm in, opened certain doors of opportunity for me to go through, closed other doors of opportunities that I would not be able to walk through, and therefore, that is what predestination looks like. And so when we today read about God's will, we're not reading about God imposing His will on us, but we are seeing that in His grace and mercy, He has chosen to design us in a certain way that we fit the grand plans that He has got. And so when Paul is saying, let's praise God for his predestination, us as Western folk, and we go, no, I don't want someone else to determine my life. No, no, stop it. Stop it. God is not taking away your will. When you read the rest of uh, even the first chapter of Ephesians, you will see that human beings still have a will and a choice to play out. Okay, and we're going to come to that in a little while. But when we read about His predestination, we are reading about God's design. He is His sovereign design for us. And so when we come back to this idea of blessing, that He has blessed us, He has caused us to prosper with every spiritual blessing. What are we reading about? What is every spiritual blessing? Does it mean that God's going to give you the lottery numbers for this week? I don't know how lottery works. Is there a lottery this week? Yeah, every week, yeah? Is He going to give you a new car? Is He going to give you a new house? What does it mean to have every spiritual blessing? It means that He gives you everything that you need to live in the center of His perfect will and causes you to prosper because you are in the center of His will. We bless God, we praise God because we believe that His plan for us is great and that He allows us to prosper where we are at because we are living according to His purposes, which He has foresaw years and years ago. All right, so we're going to keep going. And He says, as part of this blessing, He describes it. It says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ. This is going to be a big theme in the book of Ephesians. This idea of God revealing His mysterious plan is actually something that we're going to come back to a lot more in the next couple of chapters as well. So hold that in mind that for Paul wanting to teach these Ephesian people is helping them understand that God is actually revealing something glorious to them. And, and, and we'll come back to that in a moment as well. Uh, verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, there's another big theme in Ephesians, this idea of heaven and earth and unity. See, for us, because of the way that science has shaped us, we go a lot by what we can sense. Our eyes, our nose, our taste, our ears, our touch, all of these allow us to know what earth is like. And then we 
as Christians have an awakened spiritual sense and we sense something else, but we see heaven and earth as separate. One of the things that Paul keeps coming back to, part of the mystery of God's amazing plan is not to have heaven and earth separate, but to help us to see that God is bringing heaven on earth. This unity between heaven and earth, this unity between all that is happening on earth is not by uh, uh, some kind of accident. It is by God's sovereign plan. That is what He is trying to do. And that is really important for us to remember. Verse 11, it says, In Him we are also chosen, having been predestined, here we go again, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, and by we, he means Paul himself and his uh, team that went to Ephesus, might, uh, uh, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you, being the Ephesian people, were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. There's a few more things that you could really just reflect on. Paul has basically in this chunk of Scripture summarized or put together in a very poetic form what God has done and is doing in our lives. And what we see here is that Paul uses this kind of like global picture, right? There's this sense that God is at work outside of time, and He's at work globally. It's for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. Every person is included in this amazing plan. And Paul is not doing this just for, just for kicks and laughs. He's doing it because he's writing to a people who every day has to stare at that behemoth, that majestic thing. And what he wants the people in Ephesus to know is that you look at that, and that is temporary. You look at that, and yes, it took 220 years to build, but that is a man-made structure that will not stand the test of time. If you go search up the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, and, and you will see a bunch of ruins. In fact, when I was looking into this, uh, uh, that didn't stand for much longer after Paul came. I believe there was maybe a few more hundred years. But at one point, someone actually came through and completely demolished this temple, completely, completely buried it. And only 100 years after the demolishment of that temple, no one remembered that it stood. No one. There was this historical account of a person that had heard about the temple of Ephesus and how it's one of the great wonders of the world. He goes to Ephesus and he talks to a local person and says, where is the temple of Ephesus? I need to see it. And I was like, what? Temple of what? Temple of who? It was gone out of people's mind. And so Paul was writing to a church that while faced with their faith being challenged by that behemoth, every single day he says, you're not a small fry. You're not part of something small. 
You in this city might be isolated and small. You might see yourself with your little tribe and go, how are we supposed to be the people of God in this city where this temple worship is the center of this? How are we supposed to do this? And Paul is saying, stop just looking at your little patch. Understand that there's a global, a universal plan that God is at work and doing. And guess what? You are a part of it. You are unified in this amazing picture. Christian, we live in a day and an age where being, being part of the way is not being persecuted necessarily. I believe that times are going to get harder and harder in Australia as certain things progress. But somehow, sometimes I think Christians think that we are the most isolated people. We think that we have to face things by ourselves. We think, how am I supposed to be a Christian in my workplace, in my family, with my friends? They're going to despise me. They're not going to like me. And we stare at those social circles and social constructs as if it was a temple that is standing and dictates all of humanity. When God is saying, hang on, Christian, you are part of something so much bigger. You are part of something so much more uh, deliberate and planned out. You are helped by God in something so much more glorious. So don't give up that glory for something that is temporary, as magnificent as it looks. That's what Paul was saying and encouraging the people of Ephesus. And then he goes on in verse 15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. I want to pause there. Whenever you read in the Bible, for this reason, or because of this, find out what this for is. Sometimes we as Christians, we take little scriptures out and we go, this is what it means for me. But Paul is actually saying something in a much larger context. And, and he uses the words to help us to see that. For this reason, for what reason? Paul says that I keep giving thanks to God for you. For this reason. What is this reason? I believe that it comes back from this idea that God has this magnificent, amazing, timeless plan that he brings us into and then he says as well, ever since I have heard about your faith and your love for all God's people. Do you see this? I think what Paul is writing here is that he's saying, because God has this amazing timeless plan and you guys are being faithful to it, I keep giving thanks to God for you. You know, when I mention that even though God's predestined, God has predestined things, if we want to use that word, it doesn't mean we don't have a will. Why would Paul give thanks to God for these people's actions if God had already taken their will away and told them what to do? Made them do this. No, he's giving thanks to God for what these people are doing because they have chosen to be faithful to God's plan. The whole book of Ephesians, normally when Paul writes a letter, he's dealing with an issue within the church. 
and he lets people know pretty quick. He says, I'm writing to you because I've heard of your sexual immorality. I've heard about, uh, I'm writing to you because of the division within your church. I'm writing to you because you have allowed that that, that heretical teaching to enter into your church. I'm writing to you about all these things. But to the people of Ephesus, Paul is not writing any of that. He's saying, I am encouraged by you. And I want to encourage you. Because in the midst of what you are faced with in your social situation, you continue to be faithful to God. And so he goes on and he keeps going about these amazing things that God is doing and God is planning. And we're going to look deeper into that the next couple of weeks. But I want to pause here right now because I think that there's a thought here for us as very materially prosperous people. Am I being faithful to God and His plans? For the people of Ephesus, it would be so much easier to lead a compromised life, to still worship Diana, still be able to access all that the temple of Diana opens up for them and say, God wants me to be prosperous, right? I'm going to give this money to the church, don't worry. It's just a little bit. It's just for my family. It's okay. No, no, no. For these people, it was black and white. I'm, I'm either following Christ or I'm not. I'm either following Christ or I'm not. I want you to be able to say that, but I want you to think about it. If you were to say that, I'm either following Christ or I'm not, is that being deeply truthful? And I was thinking about this. How did Paul know that these guys were being faithful to God and His plan? Obviously, their behavioral actions spoke. By the way, Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison. He didn't write to them after a quick visit. He was in prison, and he took the time to write to this church because he heard reports from someone, hey, the church in Ephesus is going well. Awesome, tell me, what are they doing? How are they going? How do you know that they're going well? How do you know that they're being faithful to God's plan? And whoever was bringing the report saying, well, they're doing this, and they're doing this, and they're doing this. Their heart commitment is to God, and you can see it through their actions. Come on, church. we got to get past this whole idea. I worship God with my heart, and that's all that matters. No, your hands matter too. Are you being generous with your life, like what Aiden was talking about? Are you being generous with your time? The fact that you are here this Sunday, fantastic. You are saying that, God, my time with you, my time with your body is significant, and I'm going to put it apart, I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to follow you. But there's so many people, and there's so many ways that our culture is saying, don't worry about that little thing, it's all about your heart. You know when someone says you've got a good heart, you know what they mean? You're an absolute doofus. <laughs> and I'm just trying to be nice. You've got a nice heart. You've got a, good, you got a nice personality. It means you're, oh, you're useless. But sometimes we allow Christians to just be about a good heart, but a terrible commitment to God. I'm not saying this. 
I'm not facing anyone. I'm looking at that basketball hoop, all right? I'm not talking to anyone. But you look at your life, and you determine your Monday to your Sunday, every single day, every single second. Am I living in faithfulness to God's plan for my life? Because all blessings flow when I'm in the center of God's will because He has predestined me and He has chosen me and He's given me something so much more. He has brought me into a timeless, global, universal plan and I get to be part of something bigger. And every time that I see myself slipping, every time you see yourself slipping, whenever you start to pursue something that is different from God's will and you begin to compromise on what God is saying, I hope that something sparks up in you and you say, I need to come back. I want to be faithful. I want to know what it's like to live in the center of God's will. Now, I'm not trying to say that God's will is hard to a certain I think God's will is actually really easy to work out because we've got this. And sometimes we make it about all the unique circumstances. And I want to come back to this, guys. Do you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength? Do you love God with all your finances, with all of your emotional tank, with all of your, uh, 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 your time, all of your resources, all of your relationships? Are you loving God with all of them? I think it's magnificent that Paul pens this and he helps us to see, guys, what God's got is amazing. Don't compromise. Don't compromise. And then he ends this chapter in an interesting way. By the way, there are no chapters when Paul wrote this. There are no verses. It was just one big letter. But in this section, he, he writes. And if you were here at the prayer meeting, you have heard me read, read this out already. But he says, after he says, I keep giving thanks to God for you, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When you think about this, Paul just encouraged, complimented, if you will, the church in Ephesus, saying, you guys are doing great. You guys are being faithful. You guys are following Christ. But then he continues to say, I keep praying 
that the Spirit would fill you afresh, that the Spirit will, will be upon you, that your eyes will be open to the hope that is in Christ. That tells me that even though I have been saved, even though I have a relationship with God, that even though I might be doing well today, that God is still able to do even more. This book is an encouragement to live out in the more that God has for us, not living in the past and go, I'm already saved and I'm all good. Now I can do things in my own strength. No, no, no. Paul's saying, come back. You need the Spirit. You need God's power. You need fresh hope. You need to be filled again. You need to have your eyes open. You need to recharge in God. Keep going back. Keep coming back. Keep coming back to Him. Why we meet every Sunday is because we need to keep coming back. Even though I'm doing well, I keep coming back. Even though I am feeling strong, I keep coming back because I need to keep having my eyes open to the glorious hope that God has for me and His power that is incomparably bigger and stronger than anything. And then he goes on to describe the same power that raised Christ from the dead and ascended Him all the way to the right hand in heaven is available for me. <laughs> I don't know if I see that power at work in my life. Maybe it's because even though I'm strong, I can be stronger. Even though I'm going well, I can be weller. Even though I'm healed, I can be healed. There is more. And I keep coming back. And then he finishes off by saying in this chapter that Christ is the head of his church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's talking about the glorious church. And we're going to really dive into this in the next few weeks, I believe. Because as much as Dinah had that, God's chosen us to be his glorious temple. He fills us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul looks at the church, he says, this is more glorious than that. I mean, sometimes I struggle to see that. Let's be honest. Look to your left, look to your right. Does it look like that? Look. Paul says, it's better. Why? Because it's filled with God. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's filled with hope. It is filled with light. It is filled with power. And I pray in my heart that that's the church that we are aiming to be. A church that is uncompromised in our following of Christ and His plan. If I can get the band up this morning. I know I've gone a little bit over. I do apologize for that. We've done a bit of an introduction. We've done a whole chapter of this book study, and I hope that I'm leaving you with something. If I can get everyone just to close your eyes for a moment. Are you being faithful to God? If your answer is yes, well done. I keep praying that you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I keep praying that you'll find new hope and greater hope in Christ. I pray that you will find every blessing being made available, available to you in the spiritual realm. I pray that you will keep going and that you'll keep coming back. I pray that you will be the body of Christ. But if your honest answer is, I'm not sure that I'm doing too well, that being faithful to God, that's all right. We all need adjustments in our life from time to time. But what 
needs to change. See, God has chosen you for something so much bigger and better than anything this world can offer you. But it's your choice to be faithful to that call. This morning, if you are sensing, hey, I, 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 need, I need to come back to God. I've not been the most faithful. I want to lead you in a prayer, and we're all going to say this together. And so say with me, dear Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my Savior. I come back to you. Have my whole heart. Have my whole life. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.